Hello, everyone. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show at LifeSightNews.com. Since we started this podcast, I've really wanted to sit down with my friend Matt Frad for a long-ranging discussion on the state of the culture. Now, many of you have probably heard of Matt. He's quite a well-known author, a speaker, and a podcaster. But I first came across him as one of the only people who was clearly and succinctly speaking to the issue of pornography. He was using his own experience with pornography to talk to tens of thousands of young people, which he still does every single year. He was running a website at the time called The Porn Effect, which laid out all the different ways pornography was ruining your brain and wrecking your life. And in 2017, he came out with one of the most phenomenal books on pornography. It's very readable. It's very usable. It's called The Porn Myth, Exposing the Reality Behind the Fantasy of Pornography. And in this book, he goes through the experience of former porn performers. Uh, Those of you who have been following along with this podcast will have listened to my interview with a former porn performer a few episodes ago. He spoke with uh, neurologists and sociologists and psychologists and basically explained how pornography was the number one threat to our marriages, our families, our communities, and our churches. I've had quite a few long-ranging discussions with Matt over the last couple of years on exactly how our culture can survive this absolute tidal wave of filth that seems to be sort of leveling every relationship that's important to the family and important to the church, because really we are facing an unprecedented crisis, and I don't think that we've even begun to see how bad the impact of that crisis is going to be. And Matt Fratt agrees with me, so I wanted to have him on this podcast and just have a chat on exactly what families, what husbands, wives, mothers, and fathers can do uh, in the face of this unprecedented threat to our families and to our church communities, and how we can look forward with hope and, most of all, protect our children from the threat of pornography. Just to give you a little bit of background into Matt, he earned his master's degree and his undergraduate degree in philosophy from the Holy Apostles College. He runs a podcast, uh, several podcasts actually, and he currently lives in Georgia with his wife Cameron and their several children. Again, as I mentioned before, I think he's one of this generation's foremost activists and speakers on the issue of pornography, which is the number one threat to our families and our churches. And so I'm thrilled to present you with this conversation with apologist, author, and speaker, Matt Frad. Well, just to start off, could you maybe explain uh, to our listeners how you ended up doing anti-porn activism? Because as you know, I give a lot of talks on pornography as well, and we both know a lot of people who do that. And every single person reports that it's a very weird thing to do, and people think it's a really weird thing to do. Yeah. So back in, gee, 2010 or so, or maybe even earlier than that, I I began to find a significant degree of healing in my own life and just wanted to talk about it because I realized a lot of other people were struggling with this issue, but no one was really talking about it. And at the time, the only thing I could find online was you know, Triple uh, X Church, Fight the New Drug wasn't a thing, and there really wasn't many groups doing this stuff. Um, and so I thought, well, I'll, I'll talk about it. And so one of the first things my wife and I did is we got in touch with a former porn 
performer from L.A. We were living in Ireland at the time, and uh, we, we agreed to fly her from L.A. to Dublin. And in Dublin, there was a jazz club, which we rented out, just so I could interview her and she could share her story. And the way we advertised it, you couldn't tell if we were for or against porn. Right. It was just like, yeah, here's a, here's a porn star, quote unquote, though I don't like that language, but that's the language a lot of people use. Uh, and, and she's just going to share a story with you and what it, what it was like, you know. And um, he, I remember the guy at the jazz club even threw in free visual, like video for us because he thought we were pro-porn, I guess. So he got a shock on the night. Um, <laughs> and so that happened, and then I started doing uh, interviews, you know, on BBC and Irish Morning Show and things like that. And, uh, yeah, kind of went from there. I moved to Canada, and after that, I was hired by Catholic Answers and so began to write on this more and speak on this more, and I just sort of snowballed, I guess. So how did you randomly start giving presentations? Because I remember the first time I got asked to give a presentation on pornography, it went something like this. Um, I work full-time for a pro-life organization, and one of the pastors I was talking to uh, said to me, give me your analysis of how pornography and abortion and these things are kind of connected. And so I talked about how dehumanization leads to objectification and objectification mm. leads to victimization. Uh, these are sort of inevitable results. And he said, that sounds great. I would like you to put that into an hour presentation and show up at my youth camp in a few weeks. Wow. Um, and so that's how I ended up giving the talk. And then just like you discovered, it turns out that there's not very many people who are willing to talk about pornography and so I ended up doing a whole bunch of these presentations sort of by accident. What was that experience like for you? Yeah, I think for me it was less sort of uh, intellectual like yours was and more just sort of uh, personal space. You know, people wanted to hear my story. And so um, my talk talks came out of my story. Um, and then I don't kind of do that so much anymore. It kind of went from there and then I did a lot of study into it. And that's when I began speaking a lot more about what we're learning through modern science about pornography. But you know what's been funny is I've been doing this now full-time uh, for about eight years, like full-time speaking, about eight years. And what's really interesting is in the beginning, I wanted to talk about pornography, but no one wanted me to talk about pornography. You know, all the high schools, they were familiar with chastity talks right. and wanted, wanted me to give one of them and to maybe touch upon, touch upon pornography. Um, and it's been really interesting because over the last three, uh, three years, maybe four years, everybody wants me to speak about pornography. It's almost like there was this shift where everyone started to realize, okay, this isn't. It, it would be. It's not. It's not inappropriate to give a porn talk. It would be inappropriate not to address it. So that's been a really interesting thing to see. Yeah, there's two things I want to touch on there. Uh, first is what parts of your personal story really resonated with people? Because I've heard a lot of people sort of give their testimonies and explain, you know, their journey through pornography and then much more importantly, their journey out of it. And then the second question I have for you is... I've had the same experience and I know a lot of others who've had the same experience where, you know, you gave, you give a handful of porn talks and then suddenly a couple of years ago, they started be becoming, uh, you know, a, a hot item. And my response to that has always been that it's become such a big problem that nobody can ignore it anymore. Like it's sort of like there's good news and there's bad news. And the good news is that people want to address this. And the bad news is it's because it's too late for a ton of kids already and they can't ignore it because kids are sexting in school and marriages are falling apart. And, 
at this point, you know, the ostrich might have its head in the sand, but a lion has been gnawing on its leg for a bit, and now it's time to, you know, look up and see what's going on. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I think when, at least for me, I think a lot of people, when we first start giving presentations, we often emulate the people who have inspired us. And so for me, the only sort of porn talks I had ever heard were people who kind of gave this sort of uh, really intimate account of where they were and then a sort of emotional recovery moment. And then happily ever after, you can do it too. And because that's all I had heard, I have to say, that's really how I gave the talk. Um, and then I remember falling back into pornography a couple of years later or something like that, thinking, well, gee, do I no, do I no longer have a story left, you know? Um, because as I say, there was all these, all these talks kind of had this climax moment where they were like, and then I found freedom and that was it. And then I realized that probably wasn't going to be my story, that this was going to be an ongoing struggle. And at first I tried to kind of stay away from that, you know, because I'm like, gosh, I, I don't want people to know that this is something I'm still tempted by. And then I thought, well, bugger it. You know, I may as well be honest. And I, I found that when I was honest, that's what resonated. P- people were people were a lot more moved when I would just be honest and not try and be some kind of hero um, that, that was sort of bulletproof. Right. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. I find this movement has a lot more survivors than heroes, as much as we'd all like to be one. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that, that's, that, that, that really helped. And then I... And then, you know, the more study I did, the more chats I had with people like therapists and, and others, I, I, I learned from them, you know, that I was I was kind of my inclina- my inclination or my insights rather was spot on in that r- recovery is a daily choice that we make. It's not it's not like a car wash where you go through it and then you can't relate to anybody who's struggling anymore. Uh, but often we treat it like a destination, you know, like right. I'll, I'll read this book, I'll go on this retreat, this guy will pray for me, and then voila. Um, some, something will happen, in, at which point I will no longer desire these things. Um, so basically, the the approach to to talking about porn was the same approach to chastity and the original the original abstinence talks with the you know chewed up gum metaphors and the talks about <laughs> yeah. same sex attraction, which is you know the sort of pray the gay way and one day you'll be healed and you won't have to deal with these temptations anymore. And so we've just, I guess, maybe gotten more mature and intelligent about what the nature of sexuality is and what yeah, the nature of the so. temptations that accompany that are. I think that's spot on. I think in the in Christian circles, we've tended to over-spiritualize the issue of sexual sin. So you think of other, yeah. other sin, you know, like, or you think of other conditions. Like if you were to encounter someone who is exhibiting signs of, of clinical depression, you wouldn't just say, you need to pray for joy, brother. Right. You know, you would know what you don't know, and so therefore you would point him to someone who's more likely to know than you are. You would say, are you seeing anybody about this? Maybe there's something you should be taking. I mean, what the hell do you know? Probably nothing, and that's why you're referring this person on to someone else. But it's, what's been interesting is it feels like in Christian circles, if you struggle with pornography or some kind of sexual sin, it's because you're not praying hard enough, and you just need to be praying more, and, and it's all sort of spiritual. Um, which has been really unhelpful because I'm sure you're the same as me. I know people who are quite devoted to prayer and still struggle a great deal. And then I know even atheists who tell me it's been years since they've looked at pornography. So I think we just have to sort of face that and realize that, you know, Aquinas would famously say grace builds upon nature. And um, so 
I began thinking it was really quite important that people would go to therapists and even 12-step groups and things like this. And I, so to your point about us approaching this more maturely, I think, I think that's right. Well, the other thing I, I think, at least this is my experience, and, and I'd like to hear what you think of this, is, is that when somebody speaks on an issue that relates in any way to morality, people start to sort of have a misconception of what it is you do. Um, I'm not a yeah. pastor. I'm not an ordained clergy person. I am not somebody who yeah. gives lectures or topics on spiritual things. Uh, that's not that's not something that I have the expertise in. And so when uh, you ask me to give a presentation on pornography, you're going to get a presentation on pornography, uh, not on on you know the spirituality of, of of X, Y, or Z. Although we might touch on that throughout the discussion, because obviously nothing can be done without prayer. But I had one question at one presentation where somebody stuck their hand up and said, you know, you gave all these reasons why you should avoid pornography and all these practical tips um, to, to help yourself stay away from it. But you never mentioned, you know, like the specifically mentioned the Ten Commandments and this and that. Huh. And I remember saying to him, like, look, if that worked, you wouldn't have called me. Um, huh. Like you guys have been saying <laughs> that for years. Like you've been saying, look, porn's a sin. Like everybody here already knows that. They might not know that porn can cause them erectile dysfunction. They might not know that porn has the potential to destroy their capacity uh, for a loving, uncomplicated relationship later on. They might not know that pornography is actually doing things to their brain that they can't even fathom. So, like, that's why you called me, not to say the things that you've already been saying, because I think the reason I'm here having an awkward discussion about something that Christian communities have hated to talk about as recently as 45 minutes ago, you know, like... That's 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 why the call was made. Do you find that at all? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. No, definitely. Uh, you know, I, I think like in order to kind of like say bend a piece of metal back to to make it straight, you often kind of need to kind of pull it past where it ought to be. Right. And that's kind of I think kind of the tech the te- the tactic I've taken is that if all we've spoken about, in, you know, I'm a Catholic, right? So in Catholic circles, there's things like confession and adoration and the rosary. It's like, all right, I just let's put that to one side for a moment, and and so there may, I'm sure there are times where I, I I don't emphasize enough prayer when I ought to, but it's with that intention to kind of bring us back to a healthy center. But you know what's been interesting too is I've found that as I've traveled and spoken at secular events, right, like the National Center on Sexual Exploitation, mm-hmm. uh, I, I realized, wow, I actually have a lot to say here that I think these people need to hear. Because if all you do is focus on the negative consequences of pornography, which I think sometimes I've slipped into, you fail to realize that it's wrong in and of itself and why that's the case, right? Right. Because if all we do is say porn can give you erectile dysfunction, you can become addicted, it can ruin your family. Well, all sorts of other behaviors can do similar things that aren't, that we don't consider wrong. Like gambling can ruin your marriage. Gambling can be addictive. And what we tend to do is people who, who gamble and have a problem with it is we say, well, you've got to try better to regulate, you know, your, your use of gambling. And if you can't do that, you, you need to stay away from it altogether. But I don't think we want to say that about pornography. I don't think people want to say, well, do your best, you know, once a month, once a week, but uh, right. don't dip into that weird stuff. So why is that? And that's where I think um, I've tried to draw upon the wisdom of John Paul II and his writings on love and responsibility. And I found that when I shared them at, at secular groups or in LDS settings, I've been invited to speak at big LDS gatherings, that they found that really insightful and revolutionary. Yeah, no, it, it is interesting because you have a lot of philosophers who are recognizing 
because of these massive cultural problems that they don't have the answers that are necessary and that perhaps religion and faith might have a role. Uh, Sir Roger Scruton has said about Mm. pornography that he started to recognize the need um, for for religion and faith and, and started to recognize what role those played in culture previously when he started to realize that the secularist has no good philosophical reason for avoiding that beyond, as you put it, essentially damage control. Um, yeah. And Dr. Gil Dines, who we both know, is a, a, femini- a radical feminist scholar who is certainly nowhere close to us in terms of, of religion and probably even in a lot of our... Mm-hmm our ideas about abortion and other topics says that for some reason, by and large, she said, it seems to be religious people that are the most successful um, at at staying away from pornography. She actually said this in a lecture in Ottawa. Um, She wasn't pleased about it, of course, but she, she did admit that, which, which, which is impressive. And so when we're looking at, at the full impact of pornography, as you well know, um, when I started talking about pornography, I focused mainly on, on the negative aspects of it as well, simply because I assumed that most of my audience recognized that porn was wrong and they needed to understand not only how wrong it was, but that the impact of pornography on their life would be horrible beyond what they could imagine. So one thing I, I wanted to ask you is, do you find that a ton of people inside religious communities have grown to sort of accept pornography, or at least did initially before people started really waking up, uh, that porn was sort of a normal guy sin. I remember talking uh, to to one guy who basically said, yeah, well, I just, all my guy friends were looking at it. I didn't know it was going to hurt my marriage until it did. And I remember asking him, how could you not think that looking at thousands of pictures of like naked women wouldn't bug your wife? And he said, like, I know this sounds really stupid, but I just actually didn't think about it. Um, have yeah. you run into that quite a bit, too? This idea that because porn is so ubiquitous, that maybe it's normal, even if it's not something that, you know, we should be approving of? It's an interesting question. I haven't really given it much thought. I, I feel like when I started to wake up to the idea that pornography was wrong, that was around the time I became a Christian when I was 17. And so the people I tended to hang around uh, were aware of what the church taught and therefore thought it was wrong. Um, I think maybe back when I was a kid, there was this understanding that pornography was like a rite of passage and that guys do it, and it's really not that bad. And if you uh, if you have anything against that, or if you don't think it's okay, you're the one with the problem. You're the frigid. You're the prude. You're uptight. Uh, you know, you're like a moralizer. There was kind of like that idea floating around. I right. Think. So, but then I just feel like that isn't something we can buy anymore. It's like there's been a ton of studies out of sociology, neurology, and psychology, and um, it's all trickling down from academia, and we're seeing more and more people speak out of, out about it. You know, like James Hetfield from Metallica and Chris Rock, the comedian, and, and all sorts of other folks that, I don't know, I despite Pornhub's worn-out mantras that this is well-rounded entertainment for healthy adults, I think people are finding it increasingly difficult to believe them. Yes, we mentioned earlier that people are starting to realize this is a problem. Um, You know, the idea of having a presentation on pornography at a high school or a church is becoming increasingly common. What, in your analysis, is the size and the scale of this problem? One of the things that I often say in presentations and in columns is that if we don't manage to get this right, our response to pornography... Almost nothing else is going to matter. 
because this is tearing at marriages. It, the average kid that I meet at a Christian school started looking at porn in grade six. By the time he's in grade 12, he's pumped so much sewage straight into his brain that he's actually having trouble functioning in any normal capacity, you know, asking a girl out. Like, this guy has seen gangbangs before he's held hands with somebody. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. so pornography has the capacity to so thoroughly poison all of all of the social bonds that hold our Christian communities together that in my view, if we don't get this right, very little else is going to matter. What's what's your analysis of the, the scale of this problem and your experience speaking in church communities? Um, this is the point in the podcast where you kind of scare people into realizing that this is a very big deal. Yeah, I feel like uh, where are we going and why are we in this handbasket or through the name of my new book? It feels right. like uh, I have very little hope. Uh, most parents I know are freaking clueless. They're yes. giving their children portable X-rated movie theaters um, and just don't seem to want to be aware of the fact that their kids are looking at porn. I understand that there is a technological gap between parents and children and that, that that's difficult for a lot of people. But I think that most of us are willingly blind to the fact that our children are being exposed to awful things on Netflix uh, on 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 the iPhone and on the tablet that we've given them, um, and I think that's just bloody outrageous. And and I I think we'll be held accountable to Almighty God for the sins of giving our children these things. And 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 when Jesus talked about these bloody millstones that would be put around our neck, right? Uh, I, I think that still applies. And He hasn't begun manufacturing styrofoam millstones. Like if we fail our children so drastically in this area, uh, I think that, that we could suffer eternal consequences in hell. Um, but I also think there's going to be a lot of damage that, that we're going to see on the way there. And I think we're already seeing it. Um, it just it just blows me away. I speak at Catholic schools. And it, it just cannot understand how a parent thinks it's a good idea to give their 8-year-old or their 12-year-old an iPhone or an iPad. So if you're a parent listening to me and you've done that, like I, I think you're probably a bad parent. Like I don't know how else to say it. Right. If you've given your child a, uh, an iPhone or an iPad, and they're six or seven, you've done nothing to lock it down. You're not doing a good enough job. And I know no one likes being told when what they're doing is wrong. I hate it. My wife tells me every day, you know. <laughs> but some someone has to say it. Someone has to say that we're leading children to to a, to a, to hell. And we're also just sort of numbing them all the way there. Um, so I, I think we've just got to totally reclaim family life. We've got to do away with technology to a great extent. We've got to learn to love good books and poetry again and, and songs that we play. And that we just need to, we need to be radically different uh, if, if we want to be healthy, I think. Is that scary enough? Yeah, throw out, some, throw out some some numbers because one of the things that I do, especially speaking for church audiences, is I give stories, anonymized of course, um, that I have heard from people uh, in Christian schools. If I can, I use stories that I have heard from their kids at their school, um, which is not hard to do. And most parents are consistently shocked. And I guess one of the reasons that Logically speaking, I don't totally understand the shock is is one of the ways I explain it to older parents. 
Um, cause you know, you're a parent and I'm a parent. So I mean, more people of, of my, you know, my parents generation. So my parents are, you know, uh, late forties, early fifties is if back in the day when you were a kid, the house was filled with unlocked closets filled with playboy hustler and penthouse. And your parents just left these closets unlocked, but you knew they were there because they were just assuming that you'd never open these closets out of curiosity or in a moment of weakness. Um, that's basically the equivalent of having all these unsecured devices laying around the house, except way worse because you couldn't find a closet big enough to hold it all. And your mind can't actually wrap itself around just how depraved the material they're accessing is. And so this seems, this seems very, very obvious that, that, you know, they would never trust themselves. Uh, with 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 a scenario like that, if they think back to themselves as a kid or an adolescent or a teen, you know, they know that they would probably have fallen into sin as well. And so maybe a few numbers will help as well. Like what, how young are the kids that you've talked to that are hooked on porn? And how big of a problem do you think this is in terms of when you speak to a class, you assume how many kids are looking at porn? Yeah, great analogy, by the way. I think I'm going to steal that one. Please do. Very good. <laughs> yeah, I um, you know, I don't have any official stats in front of me. I mean, but but I my well, let me answer your last question first. When I get up to speak to to a room full of high school students, I expect that about seventy percent, at least, are looking at pornography on a regular basis, and right. that includes the girls too. Um, so there's a there's a lot of that, um, and I'm encountering lots of young kids like 12 year olds and things who are writing writing to me you know saying i want to tell my mum, but i'm afraid she'll lose all respect for me she has no idea i just heard a heartbreaking story the other day of a 13 year old boy he was given a phone i think when he was about 11 he starts looking at pornography and hates that he is but also loves it uh, because you know it feels good uh, a couple of months go by and he just doesn't know what to do he can't tell his parents so he quietly breaks his phone, like smashes his phone, so he'll stop looking at pornography. A few weeks go by and he can't hide it anymore, and he admits to his mum that he broke his phone. His mum's a bit disappointed with him, and she buys him another one. A couple of months go by, he breaks that one, and she gives him a lecture on why he's got to be more careful with his things, more respectful, because it costs a bit of money. After the third phone broke, she said, all right, what's happening? And only then was he able to sort of break down and admit that he cannot stop looking at pornography? Now, I have to think that this mother wasn't entirely stupid, just like we aren't entirely stupid. Right. But, but you know, the thing, the difference between, of course, pornography and, say, alcohol is you can hide pornography, you know, to some extent. You can't, you know, smell it on their breath. You know, uh, they everything else might seem to be going well, or maybe you think, well, he's just turning into a moody teenager. And you have no idea what's going on. And I've met really plugged-in parents who, you know, after a year or two of their kid looking at porn, they finally find out, um, which I think is just why we need to be having these conversations with our kids early, like six years old early. Yeah. 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 One of the things I've said to parents a lot is because they'll say things like it's – I've had this conversation with like, with several just in the past few months where they're like, yeah, your, your kid's really young. You don't know how hard it is you know, to keep an iPad or a cell phone or whatever away from your kids or they're begging every day and you know, they're eight or nine years old or you know, it's so embarrassing. To, this, is when I, this is when I got quite a bit. It's so embarrassing to talk about porn with your kids. 
And my response to that has been like, I talk to enough young couples and I know enough young people uh, to tell you that if you think that's embarrassing, wait until your kid gets divorced two years into his marriage or wait, wait, and wait until your wait until your kid does something truly terrible because they've, they've looked at porn for 10 years and their life is falling apart. On the grand scheme of things, like the earlier the better, which is true about any dangerous addiction, but also I genuinely think that a lot of people seem uh, to think that they can sort of hide from the problem, but that this problem isn't going to reach a natural conclusion, which is the disintegration of romantic relationships, the rupturing of the family. Uh, the number of younger, I had this at a high school a while ago, a 13-year-old girl came to me and said, what do I do? My dad comes into my room and watches porn on my computer when, when he oh, thinks I'm asleep. Because um, he doesn't want to use the main one, but he, he thinks I'm sleeping. So it's, it's not like this dad. Oh, God. Right? Like, he, he, he doesn't want his daughter to know. But I, I looked at her, and I could see it in her face. And I was like, you know what? This dad doesn't even know this yet. But his 13-year-old daughter has no respect for him. And considering she's seen what he watched, it is going to be incredibly difficult for him to ever get that back. So yeah. how do we get through to people that that like porn use isn't just going to stay porn use. Porn use escalates. It tears things apart. Like what goes up must come down. I don't know how many other ways I can put it, but do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, no, I do know what you're trying to say. Um I honestly I feel like if people have listened this far into the interview, that, that then these are the sorts of parents who probably are uh, having those difficult conversations or who are about to, right. you know, like I don't think there's many people listening to this this far into the interview that will be convinced by anything else I have to say. I, I would highly recommend the parents, the good parents who are listening to get uh, an excellent book called Good Pictures, Bad Pictures, Porn Proofing Today's Young Kids. Yes. It's beautifully illustrated and designed for you to read to your children. So even though you might find this a little awkward, the book will help you a great deal. It's very positive. It doesn't put thoughts in their head. It's not creepy or weird. And I would say buy like five copies, buy 10 copies and give it to your friends. Um, because uh, as I say, I think the parents who are listening right now probably get that this is a big deal that they need to address and that they can help their friends address this too. Um, and they could be yeah, saving their friend's kid's future marriage or, you know, or their soul, you know. So one thing I wanted you to kind of briefly detail for us, um, because you, you write about this quite a bit in your book, The Porn Myth, is what are the impacts of pornography on the brain? Because we're just starting to really understand that pornography isn't just a sexual sin, although it is that. But I think the idea that pornography... Um, and the obviously accompanying masturbation was just was just a, like a, you know a, a sexual sin actually allowed a lot of people to be like well boys will be boys we'll ignore that um, but now we're discovering that the impact on the brain is is far more serious than we ever thought and and it's something if there's one thing that I find most parents are unaware of and most people in general are unaware of so for anybody who's listening to this podcast and has struggled with porn or will struggle with it or will be tempted by it it would be really good for people to understand that pornography isn't just a sin it also has a real world measurable impact yeah yeah so it, you know we used to think and and perhaps a lot of us still do think that in order for something to be addictive, it had to be a substance that you put into your body, like alcohol or nicotine or something. But since neuroscientists have started 
looking into the brain with their fancy brain scanner things like fMRI scans and things. It's changed how they've understood addiction. And so it's understood, you know, that behaviors can be just as addictive as substances can, which is why in the American Psychiatric uh, Association's, uh, what's it called, the DSM-5, they have, um, they have pathological gambling uh, as, as a category. And I think most people would just recognize that, yeah, gambling can be addictive. Right. But, of course, nothing's ingested with gambling or injected, so what's the deal? So, and then people might also have a problem with the word addiction. You know, they say, well, aren't people just using that term to evade culpability for their actions, talking about how they're a victim and, and, and such? And that might be true, but just because the term can be abused doesn't mean it can't be correctly applied. Right. And I think, it, I think it can be. And so when I use the word addiction, I don't mean it in a psychological sense, which might be um, when you continue to engage in a behavior that has deleterious consequences uh, and you keep going anyway. I don't mean it in a spiritual sense. Uh, you might say a, a spiritual definition of addiction is when we bring our hunger for uh, an infinite good to a finite good or something. I do mean it in the new sort of neurological sense. And so what I often say to people who are skeptical that pornography can be addictive is I say, okay, suppose you've got two people and one of them's addicted to meth. Okay, H how would you know? Like, do you think if you looked at the brain, like if a neuroscientist were able to look at the brain, do you think he'd be able to tell? I said, well, yeah. Okay, so then, so people who are addicted have, have changes in the brain, even if we're not sure what they are. Well, what I'm saying is there's about 40 neuroscience-based studies right now um, and all of them support the addiction model. And what I mean by that is all of them suggest from brain scans, the brain has been negatively impacted by this behavior, just like the brain can be negatively impacted by drugs we bring into the body through ingesting them. And so what happens, just really briefly, is you know, one of the things that happens is dopamine, which plays a key role in the pleasure-reward centers of the brain, uh, it's a neurotransmitter, this begins to shrink, and then the reward center in our brain is in a state of dopamine craving. And so in order to feel normal, we have to engage with that drug more. And in the case of pornography, we have to watch even more shocking and deviant forms of it just to feel even, just to feel normal. And, and that's, that's really scary, you know, because life becomes sort of sepia-toned and uninteresting. And so for many of us, we have to kind of keep going back to porn to get that boost of dopamine to feel good again. And, um, you know, there's a lot more that could be said. There's actual physical changes that happen in the brain. This was shown in the 2014 Kuhn study that came out of the Max Planck Institute, uh, Max Planck Institute in Germany. Um, you know, and so that's really scary stuff. And uh, the good news is the brain is, but the brain can can heal itself over time to a good degree. Um, but but that that's just some of the things that we're we're, we're learning, and this is why we. And we can't be treating this stuff lightly. I want to double back to something you mentioned just because, uh, as you said it, it kind of you know triggered a, a memory in my own brain. You mentioned that when you're facing an audience, you assume that at least 70% of the people there um, are looking at porn regularly, and that includes girls. Now, I myself had to be educated on this when I first started off giving these presentations because I just assumed by and large that this was a largely male sin because men are generally more hypersexualized, especially adolescent yeah. male. They're far more visual. You know, all yeah. the guys in high school were checking out the girls' legs. I don't know a single girl who was doing the same thing. It just, <laughs> you know, it seemed fairly, uh, fairly obvious to me that, you know, girl magazines 
and guy magazines even, right? Even a car magazine for Pete's sakes. They all use female bodies to try and sort of uh, to stoke lust, hoping that will lead to, you know, envy. Um, but one of the, the things that, that I've, I've increasingly learned to my surprise is that girls are looking at pornography in increasing numbers. Um, our mutual friend, uh, Jessica Harris, um, who is a, a former porn user, speaks a lot about how the how well females respond to pornography and how there is differences between how men and women react to pornography, but that despite this, women are watching pornography, for example, the, the kind of violent pornography that's becoming mainstream yeah. in almost the same numbers that males are. And I saw a study, or I, I should say I read the abstract. I haven't had time to read the whole thing yet. That came out a couple of weeks ago. Um, and the title kind of said it all. It said women watch violent porn too. Um, yeah. Of course, the purpose of this was to say, like, look, women do it too. It's fine. Men aren't misogynist pigs for enjoying watching women get beaten up. Um, and so we're we're good to go. We can we can gaslight everybody by saying stuff like that. But explain for our listeners, many of whom will probably be as incredulous as I was when I found out. Uh, this sort of trend of increasing numbers of women engaging in what is traditionally considered to be a male sin. Yeah, I think part of part of that, or a big part of the increase in women looking at porn, because I think there's probably been a significant increase in how many women view porn over the last 20, 30 years. Like, I don't think back in the 70s and 80s and even maybe early 90s, you've got a big swath of women watching porn. Uh, at least compared to today. And I think the difference is young women are being exposed to pornography just like young men in the sort of privacy and intimacy of their own home. And uh, that's a different thing. So it's, you know, when I was a kid, if I wanted to find porn, you know, I had to find a friend's dad who had it in his closet in a shoebox. And so it was like a joint adventure where we would where we would actually seek out porn together. Right. And I don't know too many women that were doing that. But I think it's a different thing when porn comes looking for you and it finds you and you feel all sorts of things like excitement and disgust and interest and wonder and curiosity. And uh, when that happens, um, and of course, pleasure, you know, we're sexual beings. We're supposed to be finding sex interesting and, and, and all that. You know, I think for many of us, pornography becomes the thing that we turn back to again and again when we feel emotionally turbulent or when we feel invisible. You know, I've had women say that to me when I feel like all my friends are dating and I'm not. Um, It's like that pacifier that we we learn how to use at an early age because it was thrust in our faces. And I think that's probably in part why we're seeing a lot more women today in there in their teenage years, in their 20s and 30s and 40s or whatever, uh, looking at porn. That, that's partly it, I think, because uh, they were exposed to it at a much younger age and began trying to figure out how to, quote, you know, how to use it. So how do people who are looking at porn stop looking at porn? And I know there's a whole bunch of different answers to this. Uh, you and I once did a couple of episodes on your podcast just talking about the different ways you fill your life with things that aren't porn, um, which obviously is uh, is one answer. Um, but in all of your experience, because you've talked to more people than almost anyone on this specific issue. So what are a couple of the sort of hard and fast practical tips you would give to people who struggle with porn or for those who are listening and will encounter somebody who looks at porn at some point? What advice would you give people um, to share with people that they, they know and love who are struggling with this issue? 
there, there's some initial you've got to be doing these sort of ideas, and then there's some 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 big answers. So you know, accountability is necessary. Having an accountability partner, admitting that you're wrong in looking at pornography and need to change because it's damaging you. Um, having good filtering and accountability software. These are all the bare essentials before freedom's even a possibility. If you don't want to do those things, that's fine. Just stop saying you want to not look at porn. Just admit that you want to look at porn. Be honest. Uh, stop lying to yourself and other people. Uh, saying that you want to be free of porn, but you don't want to have to get covenant eyes or accountability partner or whatever. That's, that's like saying I want to run a marathon, but I don't want to work out and eat healthy or buy sneakers. It's like just say you don't want to run a marathon. You don't right. have to pretend, you know. So that's sort of the, some of the obvious things. Some of the more big gun things that, that I've seen personally have been things like finding a good therapist, uh, perhaps preferably a, a certified sex addiction therapist um, in your area. Uh, that's easier to find than you might think. Um, there's some – you can just – Kind of one way to look at it would be to go to uh, my website. I have a website called Love People Use Things FM, and if you go to therapist, there's a way to punch in your postal code, and you can find them in your area. That would be a, a very, very good thing to do to find a good therapist um, because they can help you get to the root of some of these things. O often we we act out of fear, and we don't know where the fear is coming from. We're triggered by things, and we're not sure why we're triggered by them. And I think a therapist can help us get to the root of them. I think, secondly, a good 12-step group is a great idea, which which is what? I mean, it's sitting around with people who are being honest with each other and are encouraging each other. This is just human formation that we ought to have, but many of us don't have in any sense at all anyway. Uh, so just to be with people and, and, and to share your story and to not have them leave, that's a healing thing. <laughs> So you know, SA.org can be a way to find a, a group. You can maybe begin with a phone meeting. You can find out how to do that at SA.org and then hopefully begin meeting in person. And, and then finally, I think some sort of spiritual direction. So having a, a priest or a pastor or someone well advanced in the spiritual life that you can meet with about your prayer life, about how you view God, about how you think he views you and things like that, because I think very often our struggle with pornography can yeah, it can kind of it can retard our spiritual life, if you want, in a sense, because all of our praying is focused around not falling, as opposed to intimacy with with God. So I think those three big things can help. Also, I'd be amiss if I didn't say, I've just created a 21-day detox from porn video series. Okay. And uh, it's so high production value, you will not believe it's Catholic. I mean, it's not. It's, it's <laughs> you'll, th you'll 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 think it's Mormon. Exactly. You'll think it's Mormon. Exactly. But I, I would I would really recommend people check that out. Strive21.com. Strive21.com. It launches three times a year, and it hasn't launched yet. It's about to launch in March. If people go to Strive21.com and put in their email, I'll email them when it's about to launch. And then it's just for men right now. We're going to create one for women soon. But basically, there's going to be thousands of men from around the world who are going to begin on day one. There's daily videos, there's daily challenges. You get put into video small groups uh, so that you can journey to freedom together. It's a really collaborative effort and, as I say, really high production. Um, so I, I'm really happy about that because, as you said, I've been speaking to a lot of people about this for years now, and this is kind of the first time I've been able to, I've been able to bring all of the things that I, I have learned into, into one area. So those would be a few ideas.
That's fantastic. I was actually wondering, <laughs> you kind of triggered me as, as you were listing this. <laughs> Why is the anti-porn movement uh, so filled with Mormons? I didn't, I don't think I've ever met so many Mormons as I did at an anti-porn <laughs> conference. It's, most people don't know I this until they check out where these organizations are registered, right? But Fight the New Drug is from Utah. Good Pictures, Bad Pictures, written by an awesome Mormon lady. Why is it that yeah. they're so good on this issue and so present at every single place where this is being discussed? I have two ideas, uh, which I haven't kind of verified, but I think they're probably accurate. I think one is, one is, the LDS have a strong emphasis on family in a way that Christians often don't, uh, so that they will have weekly family game nights, and that's just kind of part of what happens, and that's just what you do. Um, they're very much taken care of by the community. You know, they'll have, I'm not sure what they refer to their leaders as, uh, priests or bishops or whatever, but they they show up at their house, you know, on a regular basis. So they actually have leaders from the church coming to visit you on a regular basis. And so I think, number one, is the strong emphasis on family. They've got that down really well. And then secondly, I think what happens, this is my just suspicion, which I haven't validated with many Mormons, is that I think Mormons realize that if they come out with a Mormon program, they'll alienate like 90% of their audience. Oh, yeah. So what they do is like, okay, fine, we'll leave the religious stuff that you find so offensive to one side, and we will just focus on the science. And so that's what they've done in a way that many of us didn't realize we sh maybe could have done. So we kept coming out with these Christian programs, that were, whereas a lot of them were like, okay, let's just focus on the science. And I also think they're just really talented. I think they've got a lot of, I think they have a lot of good people with a lot of money, and they know how to use their money well. And so they're really interested. I think I find I found that Mormons are really good about investing into things that are going to bless society. Whereas, so I think we got a lot to learn from them in that regard. Yeah, yeah. There's, so there's one question I, I really want I really want your opinion on simply because I get asked it a lot, and I have my own my own theories about this. So I'm going to ask you to hypothesize on something you can't possibly yeah. know. When you talked about the impact of porn on society and on church communities, you said you don't have a lot of hope. If you had to look at the next 10 to 20 years, how do you hypothesize this thing unfolding from a sociological, cultural perspective? Because, again, this is happening right now. Um, you see the effects all the time. And so if you had to make a prediction, uh, how, how, <laughs> how, would you, how would you see this unfolding? Yeah, I think marriage will continue to be bastardized uh, and not happening. Uh, I think that children will become these little objects that are meant to somehow exist and uh, begin independently of human love. So I think there's been a real separation between... But uh, I think the breakdown of the family is what it is. Like, I think, like, Marvel doesn't seem to do a great job with villains, so I have a, I have a suggestion for them. Okay. Um, if you, if you, and this is, this is kind of, I'm borrowing some of this from Christopher West, but if you wanted to destroy society, well, then that's okay. Well, how do you do that? Um, well, what if you want to do grassroots? So, so, so it was sort of effective. Well, you would go, you'd say, well, what's the basic unit of society? And you'd say, well, the family. All right, well, what's the sort of nucleus of, of the family? Well, husband and wife. All right, well, what's, what's the thing that they do that distinguishes their relationship from other relationships? Well, it's a sexual act. All right, good. So if we can separate life and love, if we can pervert the sexual act, 
that'll pervert the family, and that'll pervert society, and that'll pervert the world. So I think the solution is to uh, a really holistic and Christian view of human sexuality. And I think if we fail to regain that, um, we're just going to become increasingly, um, you know, unhuman in our in our love and in our life and in our families. I think it's just going to continue to disintegrate, and you're going to have pockets of tremendous hope uh, around the world in these little Christian ghettos um, while everyone else goes insane. That's my that's my that would be one way I think I'd look at it. Okay, yeah, because the, the analogy that I've, I've used for people when they're asking me is I, I say, look, the reason that people want porn talks now is because the problem has become too big for them to ignore. Like I said, the lion is chewing on yeah. the ostrich's leg. But there's a when you think about tidal waves, right, um, you know a tidal wave is coming when all the water sucks back from the shore and then suddenly you can see all the garbage and the trash laying there. Uh-huh. And you're staring at it, and you're like, wow, that's that that's rough. Things are bad. This is dirty. It's full of garbage. But at that moment, just as you're realizing how bad things are, the tidal wave is actually hanging above your head. Huh. And that's the moment I think we're in right now where we're like, wow, no, we should probably clean some stuff up because things are really <laughs> bad right now. Um, you know, we should get a couple of people together and pick up some litter, right? We should get a church presentation. We should have somebody speak to, you know, grade 12 because this is way too graphic of a presentation for, you know, grade nine where they've all been looking at porn for three years already. Um, so we should we should definitely do something about this. And the tidal wave is about to completely sweep everything away. Um, I don't know what the response to that is, and it's not something I want to share with somebody who's asking for a porn presentation because that is the right thing to do. But you know what I mean? Yeah, that's a really grim and uh, apt analogy. Yeah, I think I think <clears throat> there's this line that came out of the Second Vatican Council, uh, which is like a Catholic Church council. It said, when God is forgotten, the human creature becomes unintelligible. And I think you see that with our eight billion genders and all that kind of nonsense. Yeah. So I think those Christians who are faithful to Almighty God and to the Scriptures— and to Christian life, will be persecuted, um, but happy. Uh, but I think unless the world repents, it's going to become increasingly insane and unhappy. And I think what we're going to see, too, is this attempt to cure the wound with a Band-Aid, right? And I think part of the Me Too movement's been a bit of that, you know? Like, there's obviously been some positive aspects of the Me Too movement. Right. But the same people that are talking about the Me Too movement, I'm not sure if they're out there also saying that pornography is evil. I'm not sure if they're saying fornication is evil. I think what they want is sort of sexual um, licentiousness uh, while not having abuse uh, or people feeling degraded. Yeah, you're not going to get it. You're not going to get it that way. Yeah, no, I've one of the things that I find interesting about the Me Too movement and all these sort of responses to the excesses of the sexual revolution, they're starting to realize what Chesterton said, right, which is never tear down a fence until you realize why it was put up. And with the Me Too movement, one of the things I found very interesting is that every secular response to the sexual revolution to try and curb its excesses comes without the one thing that sets Christianity apart. There's no redemption. There's no forgiveness. Repentance gets you nowhere. If if you screw up and the Me Too movement catches you and you've done horrible ah. things and you're a horrible person, that is you for the rest of your life. You're, you're a horrible person to be driven out of public life. Your name will be taken off. Whatever films or other stuff you put out, you're finished. Um, 
And so it's quite interesting because the, the Christian response to sexual brokenness, obviously, is repentance, forgiveness, and healing, whereas the secular response is, um, well, you're the scapegoat now. We're going to make you a symbol of everything that's evil. We're going to drive you out of public life, and you can stay there and lick your wounds till you're dead. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. I also had this other thought recently which kind of coincides with that. You know how Christians in the past, maybe still in some corners, were painted as those people who were always taking offense and always preaching? You know, it's like that's yeah. how the secular culture wanted to view us about 10 years ago, or yep. maybe 10 minutes ago. Whereas now, that's doesn't that describe Hollywood really well? Doesn't that describe, like, mainstream news? It's like they're always offended and they're always preaching. And I think the regular Joe is just like, oh, would you leave me alone? Right. What? Have you, have you seen that? And, and I would love to hear your thoughts on that. That's that's actually totally true. And there's there's a, there's another layer to this um, because the, the connection between pornography and the Me Too movement is, is sort of obvious. So much of the stuff is learned behavior, um, not to, to shock the viewers too much. But anybody who's listened this long isn't going to care. One of the things that struck me about a lot of the Me Too stories is how obviously pornified they were. Um, there was almost no sex in most of the sex scandals. It was you yeah. know, guys masturbating into plants and things like that. And I'm just like. It's it's in, in in a pornified 21st century culture, there are no there is no sex and sex scandals because even sex scandals have been ruined by porn. So that's mm. that's the one thing that was sort of interesting. What did how did G.K. Chesterton put it? He said they've twisted even decent sins and shapes not to be named. Um, oh, interesting. He said that that's the poem that 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 he opens the, the man who was Thursday with. And so mm. in, in terms of, of the culture preaching, my analysis of it is, is that. These are by virtue signaling. These are cultural indulgences they use to buy a pass for their garbage behavior, right? So there was that uh, that feminist who famously wrote in the New York Times when when Bill Clinton got busted using an intern for an ashtray, and and he got they she basically said, "Look, um, I think that everybody should give Bill Clinton oral sex for keeping abortion legal. Like we all sort of owe him a free pass." Yeah. But said this explicitly. Yeah. And I think that that one of the things that the Me Too movement has exposed is that the new rules no longer apply and nobody knows what they are. And so look at what Harvey Weinstein said as he was going down, right? He said, if you give me one more chance, I'll use all my money fighting guns in the NRA, right? It was one last attempt to use the old rules to get him out of a situation where the old rules didn't apply, right? Like, look, I say the right stuff. I'm pro-choice. I love Cecile Richards and Planned Parenthood. I hate guns. Right. Like you're supposed to let me do what I want with girls. So as long as I keep on supporting the right stuff. Right. The same thing with Eric Schneiderman, the attorney general of New York, who was the champion of Planned Parenthood. There was these glowing profiles written uh, about him, about his abortion support. And it turns out he was beating on his girlfriend and calling her his slave girl. Right. Like Mm -hmm. and work your way through the list. Each and every guy thought they could get away with it because they were doing that preachy thing you referred to in public. And yeah. in, and in private, we're trying to get away get away with it. It's the whole thing is has a lot of perverse layers, as the unfortunate listeners have just discovered. But <laughs> yeah, it's just it's the brokenness upon brokenness. If you're an analyst and you write columns, um, like we both do from time to time, you can spend so much time looking at this. But let's end on a on a better note than Harvey Weinstein. You've spent the last 10 years of your life attempting to fill your time with things that aren't porn. And you, you've talked about these hopeful Christian enclaves. So let's end by just talking about those for a few minutes. In your mind, what does a healthy 
hopeful, thriving Christian enclave look like? Ah, uh, well, I mean, I think I'm beginning to see some of it here where I live in Atlanta. So our children go to a two-day-a-week classical hybrid school called Regina Chaley. So Mondays and Thursdays, they'll go to school, and then they're homeschooled on the other three days. Okay. And they memorize poetry, and they learn Latin and Greek, and they read good books, and technology is not allowed. And it's beautiful, and the kids are happy. And I've never had my kids bug me for a phone because the other kids they hang out with uh, you know, belong to parents who also would never in a million years buy their little kids a phone. So um, my children, you know, they play with other kids who are good kids. And I mean like the boys are beating the snot out of each other on the trampoline and wrestling, <laughs> you know, while the girls are shrieking and running around the backyard and swinging far too high on the swings. They're good, normal kids, um, you know, who, who are beautiful and awkward and whose parents love them and um, whose parents are not just denying them to see the latest movies and things, but in, in place of those things are putting beautiful things. I, I like the analogy of, you know, if, 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 if children were only given the option between bad kind of apples and bananas or junk food, and they could eat whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, they would quickly become accustomed to junk food and would never want to eat fruit. Right. But, but what if you just didn't buy junk food for your kids and you just provided beautiful, fresh vegetables and, and, and just healthy food and meats? Well, they would probably be fine with that, and they'd end up a lot better off for it. And I think there's um, these good Christian communities that I'm seeing, that's kind of what they're doing. They're just helping to fill their children's minds with beautiful things uh, and the love of the Lord. Um, and and not allow and 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 the gross stuff is isn't an option because why would it be? It's stupid. Yeah, Anthony Eslin calls the the great works of classical literature. Uh, literature, he says, it's the great unused artillery of the culture war. Um, mm. We had a discussion about about that on, on the very first podcast uh, of this show. And as sort of a final question, because I know there's going to be a lot of people listening, and and we've talked about this before, you and I, but. A lot of people who didn't grow up reading books, which is everybody who's growing up now, um, will want to know, okay, well, what if, what if, you know, um, Dostoevsky or Tolstoy is, is a bit of a stretch for me? Like, where, where do I start? How do I start, you know, redefining my palate and start to fall in love with beautiful things instead of the junk food that I've been, I've been accustomed to? Because obviously that, that's sort of a transition um, so, yeah. so how would you advise somebody to take the first small steps in recognition that this is a huge change for a lot of people? I think first you just remove the poison, you know, and so what that might mean is blocking all the blocking your phone. Like uh, I, I actually do this. I have my wife in settings uh, block the app store, and then that enables me to block email, uh, block Safari, uh, block any kind of social media, which I don't even use anymore. And that way I can only use the internet when I'm on my computer. And it turns out I'm a lot more, less, a lot less distracted. So I think that's the first thing. It's like, how can you become less distracted? Because um, I think we're very good at just adding things instead of subtracting things. So it's like, oh, there's a new problem because we're dysfunctional. Okay, well, here's an app. It's like, right. well, how about just removing some of the dysfunction? So maybe that's the first step is removing the ability to distract yourself to death. And then secondly, you know, I would recommend reading some short stories. So there's the great collection of Tolstoy short stories. He wrote a great little uh, uh, 
story called The Death of, what was it called? The Death of Ivan Ilyich? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would recommend, yeah. So, and what, the nice thing about reading short stories from classical authors is, you know, you can get through it. It's not that long. And, and you might even get a bit of confidence as you do it. You know, you might not want to just pick up, pick up the Brothers Karamazov right away, but just begin to read maybe a short dialogue by Plato, uh, like Gorgias or something like that. And uh, you, you'll quickly find that actually this isn't, this isn't above you. You're able to read it, and you might even find that you enjoy it, and then you can take baby steps and go from there. And for those American listeners who are scared of the magnificent despair of Russian literature, Mark Twain is always a good option as well. <laughs> yeah, okay. And then you know who else I love? Um, uh, what's her name? Um, Georgia author. I always forget her name. Uh, Flannery O'Connor. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, so she's amazing. And she's written a lot of short stories, and they're beautiful, and they're gruesome, and they're redemptive. Yeah. And so that might be another place. Yeah, if anybody tells you to read William Faulkner, ignore them and read Flannery O'Connor instead. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, one final question, Mac, as our, our hour's up here. Where can everybody find you? Give people the podcasts and the YouTube channels. Where can people find your work? Yeah, if they just type my name in anywhere, they'll find me. You know, So mattfrad.com. Um, I run a podcast called Pints with Aquinas. I run a kind of a talk show called The Matt Frad Show that happens once a month. And these are like two to three hour sit down video chats that are also podcasts. Uh, I have somebody who runs all my social media. I don't run, I don't use it anymore, but they can follow me there. And I ask him to tweet out things from time to time that I think are important. Um, so, yeah, that, that'd be where to go. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk about all of this uh, very heavy stuff. Yeah, indeed. It's good to be with you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with author, speaker, and podcaster Matt Frad. For anyone who is interested in checking out our other podcasts or other news articles or columns, please go to LifeSiteNews.com. Thanks again for joining us this week, and we hope you'll join us again next week.